You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference. The 8th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at Queen's University Belfast in August 2018. The conference was generously supported by the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics, the School of Arts, English and Languages, and the Institute of Irish Studies, all at Queen's University Belfast, and by Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with HistoryHope.ie. There are now more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to HistoryHope.ie forward slash podcasts or visit TudorStuartIreland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. Patrick Little from History of Parliament, London. This paper was entitled Ormond and the Invaders. New light on the surrender of Dublin to the English Parliament in 1647. On the 15th of April, 1647, the King's Lord Lieutenant, the Marquis of Ormond, instructed the Ulster King of Arms, Dr. William Roberts, to produce a book of genealogies. The resultant volume was framed as an official document entitled The Book of Entries of the Names, Commands, Offices, Families, Descents and Former Services of the several commanders, officers and gentlemen sent into Ireland by the most honourable houses of Parliament in England to serve His Majesty against the Irish rebels, etc., begun by William Roberts, Doctor of Civil Law, Ulster King of Arms of all Ireland, the 16th of April, Anno Domini, 1647. And the lavishly illustrated title page is full of iconography. There's the figures of justice with her scales, as you see, this is slightly damaged, so for some reason the, the faces have gone a bit grey. But there's um, the figure of justice with her scales and sword. And on the other side, on the right-hand side, there's what's possibly supposed to be Hibernia, with a broken column perhaps signifying the gravity of life. Although she does have a smile on her face, so that's a bit odd. Um, with a knight between them bearing the king's arms and the motto Justicia Firmat Thronum, let's see that, or Justice Strengthens the Throne. That's derived from the book of Proverbs. And the title of the volume is supported by images on the left hand side of the Prince of Wales, which is Prince of Wales' feathers, most of the label on his uh, coat of arms, the shield, uh, and Ormond on the right, as a warrior lord, an interesting depiction of Ormond. And at the bottom is the shield of Dr. Roberts as King of Arms. And this figure is a title page, was followed by a transcript of Ormond's original order to Roberts, and by a series of genealogies, each with a coat of arms and a brief resume of the career of the officer in question. These included Colonel James Castle, Castle, descended from a noble and very ancient family of that surname in the county of Cambridge, and three of his captains. Also Colonel Anthony Hungerford of Wiltshire, and his Lieutenant Colonel John Falk, descended from the noble and most ancient family of the Falks of Brood in Staffordshire, and various other officers of his regiment. The listing is incomplete, but some of the entries include the dates when they were recorded, so Castell's officers were newly arrived when Ormond issued his orders on the 15th of April, were recorded in the volume in the second half of that month, while Hungerford's 
who arrived in Dublin at the end of April were added in the second half of May, the latest date in the volume being the 26th of May. Orman's instructions to Roberts set the volume in its immediate context. Interestingly, it was claimed that the Book of Entries was part of a long-standing tradition, whereas Ormond began not only in former times but also in several late expeditions in His Majesty's service, such commanders and officers as have been enlisted to serve His Majesty in the martial employments at home or have been transported into foreign parts in the like service for the future honour of themselves, their posterities and families, have had their names, additions of title or office, together with their paternal coats of armour, registered among the other monuments and records of honour for the Kingdom of Ireland. Ormond added that we are given to understand that Robert's immediate predecessor as King of Arms had done the same soon after the arrival of such forces as were sent hither out of England under the command of the most honourable Robert, Earl of Leicester, then Lord Lieutenant of his Kingdom. And he was therefore keen to follow the precedent by drawing up the present book, that the same might there remain forever for the stirring up of others to noble and laudable enterprises. Ormond also took the opportunity to justify his own decision to allow the parliamentary troops to land in Dublin. Being sent by the most honourable House of Parliament in England to serve His Majesty against the Irish rebels here, that the remembrance thereof may, by some lasting monument, be recorded unto posterity, and that it may hereafter forever appear, who have been most ready and forward to serve his majesty against the Irish rebels. And Roberts was instructed forthwith to repair unto the colonels, to collect the information, and to extend the same courtesy to all others of like quality as shall be sent hither from England, and this you are to do with as much honour as you may to the said commanders. So this wasn't just a collection of information. This was more of a ceremonial commemoration of the troops that were coming to assist Ormond in his hour of need. Ormond's surrender of Dublin to the English Parliament has long been recognised as a turning point in mid-17th century history and has attracted the attention of various historians as a result. With the failure of the first Ormond peace with the Confederate Catholics, Dublin came under immediate threat of attack by the armies of Owen Rowe O'Neill and Thomas Preston. And this prompted Ormond to seek to negotiate with Westminster in October 1646, offering to surrender Dublin and its surrounding garrisons in an attempt to save the Protestant community from annihilation. These talks soon broke down, and in November the regiments intended to reinforce the Dublin garrison were taken to Ulster instead. The threat to Dublin did not recede over the next few months, nor did the hope of some kind of military relief from England. And at the end of November, it was said that Ormond's supporters in Dublin were confident that if a thousand foot and horse land there in time with a little money, that it will be preserved. On the 6th of February, 1647, Ormond sent agents to Westminster to reopen negotiations, therefore. A second approach received a favourable reception in Parliament on the 20th of February. Orders were immediately dispatched to the other Protestant commanders in Ireland, that's Viscount Lyle and Lord Inchiquin in Munster, Sir Charles Coote in Connaught and the British forces in Ulster, to divert the attention of the Confederates away from the Irish capital and give what countenance they can to Dublin till the forces can arrive for securing it. The troops assigned to join the Dublin garrison regiments already mustering in England 
originally destined for the Army of Parliament's new Lord Lieutenant, Viscount Lyle, newly arrived in Munster. Additional orders were also sent to the commanders of the regiments, intended for Dublin in the previous October, but now in the Lacal area in southern, Munster, uh, southern Ulster, to prepare to reinforce Ormond's northern garrisons, including the strongholds of Dundalk and Drogheda. The latter forces comprised two regiments of foot under Colonels John Moore and Colonel Roger Fenwick, and a regiment of horse under Colonel Chidley Coote, the brother of Sir Charles Coote. There was a certain amount of shuffling of the cards thereafter, but essentially Ormond was eventually reinforced by five regiments in all, that's three from the north, and those of Castle and Hungerford crossing from England. The arrangement was not unconditional, however. Before the troops were dispatched, two officers were sent to Dublin to make an interim deal in which Ormond would send hostages to England to guarantee his dealings with Parliament, and in return the new troops arriving in Dublin, as well as those in the north, would be under his orders. And I'd like to emphasise this, that these are joining Ormond's army under his orders as Lord Lieutenant. So the hostages were sent over the Irish Sea at the beginning of March 1647, where they were put in the custody of Colonel Michael Jones, an Irish Protestant who was the parliamentarian governor of Chester at that time. Thereafter, the authorities of Westminster issued a flurry of orders for troops to be assembled at ports, ships made available, arms and ammunition supplied, and money raised, and all this took some time. The troops at Lacal were finally ready to move into their new positions at the end of March, so they were the first to arrive. The regiments for Dublin took longer to mobilise. For example, the Derby House Committee at Whitehall ordered that commissions were to be granted to the officers of Castle and Hungerford's regiments on the 6th and 11th of March, respectively, but in Hungerford's case that clearly did not happen, as the order had to be renewed a month later. As a result, Hungerford's men did not arrive in Dublin until a fortnight after those of Castle. But by the end of April, Ormond had received considerable reinforcements, both in Dublin and his northern garrisons, and one might assume he could face the Confederate threat with greater confidence. It was hardly surprising that he wanted to commemorate this turnaround with some lasting monument. So hence the book of entries. There was, however, a catch that the troops sent to assist Ormond were not exactly the cream of the English army. Instead of redeploying veteran new model army units, Parliament chose to cobble together regiments from a range of different sources, especially from the regional armies that had never been part of the new model and were now being disbanded to save money. So Castle's men were from Lancashire and Hungerford's from Shropshire. And the quality of these troops is uncertain. When Castle's men... Mustered in early March in Dublin, they were found to lack muskets. No, that's in England. Sorry, were found to lack muskets and pipes and even shoes. There were numerous complaints about the disorders of his soldiers, and it was even alleged that the, the regiment contained many papists and other ill-affected persons. So, one of the allegations seems to be that what they're doing is taking a lot of royalists, perhaps people who had been captured in the last battles of the Civil War, and redeploying them to Ireland. And on their arrival in Dublin a month later, the redcoats of Castell's regiment were described as very poor, very ragged, and suffering from a lack of money. Now, I'm a bit uncertain about this, because I think the situation was not irretrievable. 
I mean, one of the things is that both regiments distinguished themselves at Dungan's Hill a few months later in August. So clearly, with a bit of TLC, with a bit of money, with some shoes, there were <laughs> perhaps some weapons, I don't know. They, were, they, they weren't as, perhaps as bad as all that, but I have to look a bit further into that. But certainly, the effectiveness of the troops under Castle and Hungerford was undermined by the lack of supplies reaching Dublin during April and May. In early April, it was said that while the Catholic rebels were much daunted and discouraged at our address unto Parliament, they were now encouraged by our slow supplies. So, Parliament's sending them money, but it's not... It's sending them troops, but it's not sending them money. And furthermore, the presence of the English parliamentarian troops provokes the Confederates. So, Preston's orders to take the offensive were apparently triggered by the arrival of these men. So it's a bit of a two-edged sword. And even in the north, in, in, in Drogheda, the, um, the, more, the veteran troops under Chidley Coote, were, um, they, they were involved in rough handling of the Catholic clergy who were still within the town. And that antagonised the Catholic population. Although the Ulster troops seemed to have helped shore up Ormond's northern flank, the new regiments in Dublin did not have an immediate effect on the military situation further south, and in mid-May, the important stronghold of Carlow fell to the Confederates, and it was reported that the government garrisons are more afraid of them than ever they were, and the slow supplies from England doth increase it. So Ormond must have known that the troops arriving in Dublin were not exactly the answer to his prayers. So why the red carpet treatment? I think there were two reasons. The first was the need to buttress the failing morale of the people in the Dublin region generally, facing both material hardship and imminent risk of attack. The book of entries should thus be seen as part of a wider strategy, in which Ormond took great pains to reassure the Protestant population that everything was under control, and to encourage them to keep trusting in him as their Lord Lieutenant. The main focus of this was institutional. The Irish Council continued to sit during this period. The Irish House of Commons was also kept in session. In March, Ormond received the thanks of the Irish Parliament, and later in the same month, the members wrote to their counterparts at Westminster, urging further action to relieve the distressed Protestants of Ireland. The Commons journals revealed regular meetings which discussed a range of matters, including raising money for the new forces from Lacal, the appointment of sheriffs in various counties, the fees to be paid to the Ulster King of Arms, but this sort of thing, well, that's not. And how to, actually, I think it's to do with entry fees for um, MPs and, and peers in the, in the um, House of Parliament rather than this. And how to respond to a petition from the distressed clergy residing in or near Dublin. Ormond was well aware of the concerns of the Church of Ireland. In a very public endorsement of the Church and its liturgy, on the 18th of March, Ormond's son and heir, the Earl of Ossory, was confirmed by the Archbishop of Dublin in St. Patrick's Cathedral. And two days later, Ormond signed letters patent to authorise the appointment of Edward Parry as the new Bishop of Killaloo, a formal consecration taking place at Christchurch Cathedral on the 28th of March. There were similar moves to reward key lay supporters with the bestowal of titles. On the 8th of April... It was reported that the Governor of Dublin, Lord Lambert, is made Earl of the County of Cavan and Colonel Chichester, Earl of Donegal. 
The byproduct of such appointments in both church and state was to provide Ormond with a boost to his support in the House of Lords. The message generally seems to have been that when it came to Irish institutions, it was business as usual. Now, of course, the problem with this is we don't know how public it was. My suspicions are, if you're going to bother with this stuff, with this sort of illumination, then it's going to be on display. It's not going to be put in a drawer somewhere. But, of course, we don't know. This document is currently in the Genealogical Office, now in the National Library of Ireland. The second probable reason for Ormond publicly welcoming the new regiments was a bit more devious. Although he had made up his mind to offer the surrender of Dublin to Parliament in early February, and Westminster had certainly known about it since the 20th of February, moves to effect the actual handover proceeded even more slowly than those to send over military reinforcements. Commissioners to negotiate the handover with Ormond were chosen on the 1st of March, but their instructions were not drawn up by the Derby House Committee until the 22nd of March. The commissioners did not actually arrive until the 7th of June. So, there were four months that intervened. And while all this time, Ormond remained as Lord Lieutenant and conducted business as usual. Day to day, as we've seen, the five new regiments were under Ormond's control. They effectively ceased to be under Parliament's control. They obeyed the King's Lord Lieutenant and not the Westminster Parliament. The Book of Entries repeatedly emphasised that they'd been sent by the English Parliament to serve His Majesty against the Irish rebels. This was an anomalous situation, and one that suited Ormond for two reasons. First, the political situation in England was changing very fast, and that had knock-on effects for Ireland. As early as the 25th of February, there were rumours in Irish Protestant circles that Lyle's commission as rival Lord Lieutenant would not be renewed when it expired in April, and also that the party by whose power he was nominated, that's the independent faction of Westminster, is not the swaying party as they were when he was appointed a year before. And the rumour proved substantially true. With the eclipse of the independence, Lyle's commission was not renewed and he was out of office in mid-April, largely thanks to the increasingly powerful Presbyterian faction led by Denzel Hollis and Sir Philip Stapleton. That's the middle of April. So Lyle stopped being Lord Lieutenant. Middle of April we've got a book of entries which is making all sorts of interesting claims. The Presbyterians, the rival faction at Westminster, had strong political and personal connections with Ormond. They were much more willing to do deals with him. And this opened the possibility they might have a continuing role in the Irish government, perhaps even to the extent of being retained as Lord Lieutenant. Now here we would start speculating a little bit, but anyway... The removal of Lyle certainly made Ormond's relationship with Westminster much less complicated. As Sir John Gifford told Ormond on the 15th of April, Lyle was likely to be replaced by Lord's Justices, and it was hoped that Your Excellency would be the less displeased at this change of government in regard no man succeeded you in equal honour as Lord Lieutenant. On the 12th of May, Dudley Loftus, newly arrived in London, told Ormond of the increase of the number of those who will befriend you. And on the same day, Sir Patrick Weems reported that the veteran Irish politician, Sir William Parsons, is to be one of the Lord's Justices. A few days later, Lieutenant Henry Lee at Chester 
reported to Ormond that all great Presbyterians were your Excellency's friends and urged him to continue the government for a while, not doubting, but that ere long there may happen such a happy change as may give your Excellency very good content. With military reinforcements under his command in Dublin and the North and the Presbyterians in charge of Westminster, there was every reason for Ormond to play for time in the spring of 1647. If that was indeed Ormond's strategy, it soon unravelled. The Presbyterian ascendancy proved short-lived, and ironically the crisis was brought on by an attempt to disband the new model regiments and ship them wholesale to join the forces already in Ireland. And by early June, Hollis and Stapleton and their allies faced impeachment proceedings at Westminster. And in the meantime, and after months of delay, the parliamentary commissioners arrived in Dublin Bay on the 7th of June, bringing with them a further 2,000 soldiers under the command of the newly appointed Governor of Dublin, Colonel Michael Jones. On the 18th of June, the Dublin Articles were signed and Ormond handed over the government and the garrisons to Parliament, and he left Dublin for England in July having handed over the sword of state and the regalia, and essentially resigned as Lord Lieutenant. Whether the Dublin Articles amounted to a betrayal of the royalist cause in Ireland, or indeed of the Church of Ireland, which was so integral to it, is beyond the scope of this paper. Instead, I've narrowed the focus to look at Ormond's behaviour between February and early June 1647, when he sought to placate his own people while protecting Dublin from being overrun by the Confederates and all the time trying to keep his footing while the political tectonic plates were shifting so violently in England. The Book of Entries provides crucial evidence that despite everything, Ormond still thought he had room to manoeuvre, that he might still come out on top, as long as he could delay for long enough. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.